Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art's presentation of When Modern Was Contemporary, selections from the Roy R. Neuberger Collection, from Georgia O'Keeffe to Jackson Pollock. Details at msmuseumart.org. Good morning. It's 8.30. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, learning about the connection between trauma and mental illness. A lot of times the stigma that goes along with mental illness or addiction is a you're labeled for life with a tattoo across your forehead that says you are this disorder. But in reality, if you look at people that have those addictions or have a mental illness diagnosis, a lot of what they have done is trying to survive. Then an audio postcard from Holmes County on creating economic opportunity for more Mississippians. And ranking the presidents in our book club. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi mental health care providers are learning more about the relationship between trauma and mental illness. The goal is to help providers treat their patients better by understanding more about their individual trauma. The State Department of Mental Health is sponsoring the learning event called Weathering the Storm to shed more light on the role trauma plays in mental illness. The conference wraps up today at the Jackson Convention Complex. Adrian Hickman treats boys with addictions in Arkansas. He says the majority of people with a mental illness have experienced trauma such as sexual assault or child abuse. Hickman tells MPB's Desiree Frazier neglect can also be traumatic. If you look at the research on addictions and trauma, it shows that 90% of fully matured adults that have addictions also have trauma. And when you look at the different diagnoses that the DSM-5 would have for mental disorders, I've worked with thousands of people that that had those diagnoses. I've never worked with one yet that did not have a trauma history. And so when you look at the etiology of what plays itself out in addiction or bizarre behavior that can be called a mental illness, you will more times than not, you know, find trauma at the root of it. Can you define trauma? What is trauma? Well, there's different levels of trauma. Most of the time, what the general population looks at as trauma is what we would call a big T trauma, like sexual abuse, uh, death of a loved one, near-death experience, you know, earthquake, uh, being mugged at gunpoint, uh, those kind of things. All of those are traumas, and all of them bring damage to the brain because of it uh, 
putting the brain into a fight-flight-freeze response, and that might be one of the ways that you could define trauma. Uh, Peter Levine, who's written a lot on trauma, says trauma is anything that causes you to experience helplessness and fear at the same time, or terror and immobility, something that causes you that you can't move, you can't scream, you can't you know, get away, you can't make comment on it. So you think in, time, in terms of child abuse, uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, those kind of things, but you also have to look at a different kind of trauma, which is called deprivation trauma. Deprivation trauma is like neglect, where you don't get the touch that you need. Uh, the food, shelter, clothing is one thing, but the relationship, uh, absence of relationship, uh, neglect is shown by the research to be more damaging to a person than abuse itself. And so we usually think trauma, abuse, but trauma is also in deprivation, to not be loved, to not be cared for, to not have the baby child that's got the uh, touch and the eye contact and the cooing and the singing and the, all the different things that you want to do with a baby. There's a lot of kids that grow up without that, and you'll see more damage to their brain and more impact and the repercussions of it later on in life than you would even from the abuse things that we list as the top maybe the top ten, you know, death of a parent, sexual abuse, those kind of things. All of us experience some type of trauma, so would all of us be considered mentally ill in some way? When you say mental illness, you know, you're, you're talking from a medical model kind of point of view. A lot of times the stigma that goes along with mental illness uh, or addiction is a, you know, you're, you're labeled for life with a tattoo across your forehead that says you are this disorder. But in reality... If you look at people that have those addictions or have a mental illness diagnosis, a lot of what they have done is trying to survive, trying to overcome the things that happen to you. So you might say that a lot of mental illness is a normal human being trying to overcome the effects of trauma and be and survive. And so, no, I would not say that everybody's got mental illness. I would say that everybody's a real-life human, and you're right, everybody's gone through some kind of trauma, whether it's big T, little T, or what we call chronic T. Uh, chronic T is more like living in an environment that keeps your brain's fight-flight system almost on go. Like, for instance, there was a woman that said one time that her father would explode one time a year on an average. She said that she spent the other 364 days wondering if it's today. And so physiologically and neurobiologically, and what's happening with her is that her adrenal gland is squirting out a little bit of adrenaline. It's going to her brain, turning into cortisol. Cortisol is giving her muscles a lot of supercharged power because if it happens, then... First would be the fight response, which she would not do as a little girl to her father. Second, automatically would be the flight response to try to get to safety. So that level of hypervigilance that's going on inside the body would be called a chronic T trauma. It's not got a big event. As a matter of fact, even when her dad blew up, he didn't blow up on her. He didn't hit her. He didn't do anything. It was just an anger explosion himself. And so all of us have experienced those different kinds of traumas. And it affects all of us. Matter of fact, if you Google trauma and disease, you're going to see research after research after research to show that trauma causes cancer, autoimmune system diseases, et cetera. There was even one study that said women who have been sexually abused have eight times the incidence of breast cancer compared to women that have not. And the reason is that cortisol I just talked about a while ago. Unhealed trauma continues to produce cortisol in the brain 
which is vital for us to get away from a danger. But it's actually poison to our bodies if it just stays in there forever. MPB's Desiree Fraser with addiction counselor Adrian Hickman. Melody Worsham is a peer support specialist with the Mental Health Association of South Mississippi in Gulfport. She tells Desiree Fraser understanding trauma is key to giving clients the support they need. As a peer supporter, I'm someone with lived experience, and I've been trained and certified by the Department of Mental Health to actually help people in their recovery process, you know, because recovery is a process. It's not just something that, oh, look at me, I'm okay now. <laughs> so um, uh, so we help determine, you know, what level of recovery they're already in and then uh, determine where we need to get them so that they can live the lives they want to live in spite of the mental illness, in spite of the impact of trauma, the, in spite of uh, you know, just the life circumstances. Let's get you going. What experience do you bring to this? Tell tell us a little bit about you. Okay. Well, um, when I was about 14, I started noticing symptoms of mental illness. Um, I was hallucinating. I would lose days. Um, I'd run away. <laughs> um, I had a lot of things like that. And I also, uh, I, I was abandoned as a child. Um, I saw an awful lot of violence and abuse in my family. Um, by the time I was uh, 16, I was completely abandoned. I was just told to just leave. And um, so I had to make it on my own. By the time I was in my early 20s, I was already married and having babies. And I started having really bad symptoms. And they were just kind of chalking it up to postpartum depression. But what it was is that suddenly I'm in a safe place. You know, so the mental illness just felt like it was time to just get out. And so I started having really horrible symptoms, a lot of hallucinations, a lot of delusions. Um, that's one of my biggest symptoms that I challenge is the delusions. I have a lot of paranoia going on, uh, people after me. Um, the FBI is always taking pictures in my backyard, you know, those kind of things. Um, and so I was diagnosed in my early 20s with schizophrenia. Is it under control? How is it controlled? I started like the traditional way, you know, they, oh, we got to get you on drugs and, you know, lots of medicine, lots of medicine. Uh, a lot of the things turned me into a zombie. I didn't like it because here I am trying to be a mother. I'm trying to be a wife. I'm trying to go to school. I'm trying to work. I'm trying to, you know, have a family. <laughs> and, um, and the medicine really got in the way. And so I was never, I've, I've never been one of those people who stayed on their meds. <laughs> um, so I'd get off of them and then all of a sudden I'm in the hospital. Um, I was even on the Biloxi Bridge one time and just stopped my car in the middle of it because I thought the bridge was trying to kill me and walked off the bridge, got on the phone, called the cops, and I was reporting the bridge to the police because they were trying to kill me. Um, so uh, that was probably one of my first long-term hospitalizations was after that happened. And so it was just kind of a cycle, and it eventually took a real toll on my family. And I felt like in my own wisdom at the time that my, my husband and kids just needed to leave me alone and so I was abandoned as a child, and I ended up abandoning my whole family, you know, just trying to stay well. How do you stay well now? Uh, I have – it's amazing. Uh, when I discovered peer support, it was a concept I'd never even heard of about seven years ago. And uh, a lady from Mental Health Association, our director, Kay Denault, I'd known her from just, you know, community circles. But she offered me a job um, uh, being a facilitator of a wellness plan called RAP. And I'm like, yeah, let's do this. That sounds like fun. It was exactly what I needed. Um, RAP is one of those easy 
programs that anyone can learn. It, it, it's all about you're an expert on yourself and you learn your own wellness tools. It's just someone guiding you through to find out what's going to help you. I started implementing a RAP plan for myself and uh, getting some support, finally some people who understand me and, and some compassion and also some self-worth, you know, someone who had some confidence in me. And those were the things I needed. I needed some hope and I needed some encouragement. And, you know, so in spite of my insecurities, and I assure you I still have them, um, I just get out there and I just do it because I know it, it works for me and I know it's going to work for other people. MPB's Desiree Fraser with Melody Worsham, a peer support specialist with the Mental Health Association of South Mississippi on the role trauma plays in mental illness. Up next, an audio postcard from Holmes County on creating economic opportunity for more Mississippians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. Go to the supermarket on any given day and you'll see dozens of antibacterial products to use in your home and on your body. But a new book argues that these products are killing millions of good bacteria that could help in the fight against allergies, asthma, and obesity. So are we making our lives too clean? That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. Americans have a big decision to make on November 8th. A date which will live not in Mr. Gorbachev. We will keep this promise to the American people. Be informed. Listen to this station every day. Beginning August the 19th, Friday Night Under the Lights returns to Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hello, everyone. I'm Russ Robinson. Join me, Jay White, Jake Wimberly, George Broadstreet, and the whole gang as we bring you all the scores and the stories that make up high school football across the state of Mississippi. So join us right here on MPB Think Radio. Tomorrow at 10, MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Holmes County is the second poorest county in the nation, with the median household income just north of $22,000 a year. This week, NPR has been asking communities around the nation what can be done to create economic opportunity for more Americans. We sent MPB's Paul Boger to Holmes County armed with that question, and he sent back this audio postcard. We need to have more jobs here. Brenda Kimber, waitress at Gladys's restaurant located in Lexington, Mississippi. You know, because it's really no jobs. And then our younger generation, instead of we pulling them back and keeping them into our county, it's like we, they have to go out of town in order to make a living for themselves, in order to have a better opportunity for themselves. So first of all, I feel like it should be more, we should have more job opportunity here. That way our little town won't be going down. Instead, it'll be prospering. J. Lamar Sykes, S-Y-K-E-S. Would you ride around Holmes County? Look around. Cars sitting on rims in the front yard with the windows. You know, no, no, no self-respect. No self-respect for the houses or themselves. I said, if I happen to be an executive from Germany, coming here with Continental Tire, or, or if I happen to be an executive from Nissan or Toyota from Japan, and I flew into Jackson, Mississippi, and they rode me down Lakeland Drive, which is pristine. Turn me up 55, come up through Madison County, which is pristine at Ridgeland and Madison, and got up here and turned off at the South Holmes County exit. And I saw that crap on the side of the road. I tell the men, turn around and take me back to Jackson. 
Jonathan Clay, living in Chula, Chula, Mississippi. Do you think at this point in Holmes County there's a lot of economic opportunity here? No, not enough. Well, it's enough for if you got a, a degree or something, but for a mid-class, low-class person, no. Because it's just not enough money, I guess, to, to build a job opportunity. We need some help from the outside. We can have some foundations, some, uh, some grants or something. you got these schools out here that they don't care. My child happened to go out here to Central Homes. I elected to sit right there because this county school system is not worth a doodly damn, you know, point blank. Terrence Benford, I mean, we need more jobs just to, you know, keep from traveling up and down these dangerous highways, going to other cities and towns. We need that right here in Holmes County also. Poverty, out-migration of people. This is a story that's not unique to Holmes County, I think is important. John Green, I'm the director of the Center for Population Studies at the University of Mississippi. Uh, what can we learn from other communities that have faced this challenge? So whether it's you know more focus on tourism as it relates to kind of cultural and heritage tourism or natural or agricultural tourism, whether it's uh, you know business retention and expansion programs or entrepreneurship or even community approaches to improving the educational system that, that any counties, uh, any communities facing these challenges can learn from others who've, who've done this type of work. How do you create more jobs? How do you bring jobs here? We as a community have to get together and figure that out together. MPB's Paul Boger from Holmes County. He's asking residents there what can be done to create economic opportunity for more Americans. Up next, ranking the presidents in our book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Join me each Thursday for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. Each week we talk with you about the health issues that are facing your children. From acne to concussions to diaper rashes and tonsils, from potty training to allergies to braces, and everything in between. It's Mississippi's free weekly pediatric clinic on the radio. Listen to any of our episodes on demand through the MPB Public Radio app and online at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, this morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. You have a big decision to make on November 8th. A date which will live Ask not need in, in my Mr. Gorbachev. We will keep this promise to the American people. Be informed. Listen to this station every day. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. Go to the supermarket on any given day and you'll see dozens of antibacterial products to use in your home and on your body. But a new book argues that these products are killing millions of good bacteria that could help in the fight against allergies, asthma, and obesity. So are we making our lives too clean? That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Who is your favorite president? 
This is a pertinent question in an election year. This season's major party candidates have record or near record negatives in the polls. But many Americans can tell you quickly which president from history best represents the job for them. In his new book, Cross-Examining History, a lawyer gets answers from the experts about our presidents. Talmadge Boston interviewed historians and authors and asked them to rank the presidents. While there were surprises along the way, the top two presidents remained consistent. In every uh, presidential ranking poll of the last few decades, number one is always Abraham Lincoln and number two is always George Washington. Lincoln in particular in the way he had this vision for bringing the country together and a vision for ending slavery and how he came up with the strategy to align the public sentiment so as to ultimately embrace that vision through his issuing the Emancipation Proclamation because of military necessity. And everybody in the country wanted the Civil War to end as soon as possible, and whatever he as commander-in-chief thought could make it end sooner as a matter of military necessity was fine with them. So even though Lincoln obviously wanted to abolish slavery, wanted equality of, of opportunity for people of all races, He carefully came up with a strategy that brought the the public sentiment into alignment with his vision on those issues. All right, on to George Washington. Two things really stand out about him as to why he's always, you know, ranked right up at the top behind Lincoln, and that is, number one, not only was he our first commander-in-chief, but he was our conscience-in-chief. And the people I interviewed on uh, Washington are a husband-wife team of historians, David and Jean Heidler, They impressed upon me that uh, Washington served as conscience-in-chief, which in any organization, any government, any anything, you want to obviously have a high level, the highest level of integrity you can possibly have, and Washington had that in spades and really set the standard in terms of that level of integrity. How much time do you think has to pass from when a president is in office to when he can be judged on his success or failure. Well, Harry Truman once said it takes 50 years for the dust to settle, and I think that's that's a pretty good length of time. But as time has passed, people now realize that Eisenhower actually presided over eight years of basically peace and prosperity, and no president since him and very before him had in such a tumultuous time could maintain peace and prosperity. He was a master of foreign policy in every respect. He brought a very quick end to the Korean War, which Truman had no idea how to end. He brought an immediate end to the seizure of the Suez Canal in 1956. And as a great military leader, he knew how horrible war was. He knew more about war than anybody else. Now Eisenhower is a top ten president. Similarly, we're seeing uh, this going on with Ulysses Grant now, Grant, for many, many years, was ranked in the bottom half of presidents, but has begun uh, a rise in recent years, and it's just gonna, he's going to continue to Why? rise. And the reason is, the reason he had these low rankings, first of all, was for many generations, the top historians were Southerners. And so the Southerners weren't about to praise the presidency of the guy who had led the Union Army to defeat the Confederacy. But more importantly, the reason that he has this rise in statures, because in his time, uh, in coming off the disastrous presidency of Andrew Johnson, he did a magnificent job in Reconstruction. He did a magnificent job of using federal troops to make sure that blacks were not lynched and that there was not a reversion to the way things were before the Civil War. 
and he also was was adamant and steadfast in taking care of Native Americans who were being removed from their lands. Who was the worst president? That's a tough one. Uh, most people believe uh, in in the very very bottom, Andrew Johnson, who was such a disastrous president. Of course, he was not elected. He came into the presidency after Lincoln was assassinated. What was so bad about him? Well, he thought he could disregard Congress. Uh, he, he, he thought that the, the presidency allowed him to, to ignore uh, what Congress did, and that's what led to his impeachment, and he survived impeachment by only one vote. He basically wanted to revert to a pre-Civil War mentality of states' rights. Well, if you give states' rights to the southern states, we know how the... And I'm from Texas. I'm, I'm a Southerner, but we know how African Americans were treated by Southern states before the Civil War, and they weren't about to change that perspective after the Civil War. It was going to take federal involvement, and it did, and Grant recognized that, and that's why he's so great and Johnson was so horrible. You also have Warren G. Harding, who was in office for only two and a half years before he died in office, whose administration was full of corruption. And so thankfully, when he died, he was succeeded by Calvin Coolidge, who's also going up in the rankings in recent years in recognition of the way he was better than any president in, in the last hundred years at setting a budget, at taking, uh, at balancing a budget, at, at doing what it took to cut deficits and manage the budget. And so Harding's failure and his death allowed Calvin Coolidge to come on into office and be a very successful president. Talmadge Boston's book is called Cross-Examining History. A lawyer gets answers from the experts about our president. It includes 31 transcripts from interviews with presidential experts. Mr. Boston, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Karen. Coming up after Mississippi edition, it's Creature Comforts, MPB Season Pass, and Southern Remedy. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you like. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art's presentation of When Modern Was Contemporary, selections from the Roy R. Neuberger Collection, from Georgia O'Keeffe to Jackson Pollock. Details at msmuseumart.org.